How do you make a great society? Of course, in the last few years, the idea of making America great again has been discussed at length. Some may be surprised to learn that make America great again was not a new idea or slogan. It was Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign slogan. Well, not quite. Ronald Reagan's was let's make America great again. He just didn't put it on hats. So, but even other than Reagan, we can go back before the Reagan era to Lyndon Johnson and his ambitious plan for what? The Great Society, right? In his now famous commencement speech at the University of Michigan in 1964, President Johnson said this, we have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward toward the great society. It is a place where the city of man serves not only the needs of the body and the demands of commerce, but the desire for beauty and the hunger for community. A very, very fitting set of phrases uh, for our text tonight. You see, human beings want greatness for themselves and for their societies. They go to great efforts to try to lay hold of them. There have been many approaches and yet so many fall short or create terrible unintended consequences in their pursuit of greatness. In that very same speech, President Johnson lamented. He said, it is harder and harder to live the good life in American cities today. And that seems to be true even now. Why is that? It's been true of almost every place in every generation, including our own. Well, as we've seen in the opening chapters of Genesis, God had set up mankind for great things, but we stumbled out of the gate. Now, the Lord got us back on our feet, but now we were hobbled by sin. We couldn't run like before because of the effects of sin and death that human beings had brought into the world. Now, you fast forward a few years in the story, and we see Cain murdering his brother Abel. As a society, we were not off to a great start. And yet, God was gracious and long-suffering. As always, he kept offering a way that people might have access to him and find fulfillment in him, that he would cover the gap for the incredible mistake that human beings had made. But as is true today, he would not force anyone to go his way. We saw this last time in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel presented their offerings, presented themselves to the Lord. Uh, and we went through about how Cain did not come in faith. He did not do what the Lord asked. He was walking in rebellion against God. And what did God do? Did he smite him? Did he lightning bolt him? Did he knock him around? He didn't at all. He pulled him aside and he says, hey, man. I, I need you to go my way. If you don't go my way, your life is gonna get ruined. Sin is gonna rule over you. You're gonna be dominated and, and defeated by sin. I don't want that for you. You don't want that for you. No one around you wants that for you, but you have to choose to go my way. And yet he didn't. God will not force anyone to go his way. Human beings had and still have a true free will to either believe in God or reject him. As Genesis chapter four closes, we see the people of earth building cities and inventing things and designing systems. They're spreading into different careers and writing and creating art together. This record is an affront, by the way, to the idea that early man was some sort of grunting cave dweller that came up out of the primordial ooze. Far from it, in fact. These first inhabitants of the earth had marvelous intelligence, ingenuity, and resourcefulness. So uh, no one was crawling around on all fours and banging things with clubs the way that uh, secular scientists want you to believe. 
But as the population grows and busies itself in Genesis, God not only keeps a record of it, but he also shows a very clear distinction to us as readers. Once sin was in the picture, we find that there are only two types of people in the world. There are those who have faith in God and there are those who don't. These two distinct groups are epitomized by Cain and Abel. They were put right there on display for us. Though there was a lot of different activity and opportunity and all sorts of new horizons that humans were discovering as a race of people, all of that could be stripped away and there was one thing left. Did a person believe God or not? That difference was profound, not only in how a person thought and how they behaved, but also a great difference in the outcomes that arrived as a result. Interestingly, God did not let those who had faith in him back into the Garden of Eden. Instead, what did they do? The two groups would all live alongside one another in the world. But all along, from the time of Abel down through our own day and age, there would exist what some have called two humanities. In some ways, they would appear very similar. They inhabit the same world. They move around and rub elbows together. They mingle and use many of the same tools in, in similar pursuits when it comes to their jobs and their careers and the things they fill their days with. But if you look a bit closer, you find that the foundations and the progress and the end results of these two different societies, these two different humanities are very, very different. These two humanities are on exhibit in the second half of Genesis chapter four. And so we begin in verse 17. Cain was intimate with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Hold there. Perhaps you've heard the old question, where did Cain get his wife? It's a famous one that comes up from time to time. The answer is simple. She was his sister. It's obvious. Now, our modern ears cringe at that for a couple of reasons. First, we don't do relative marriage anymore in our society. That's a good thing. But listen, marrying a family member was a common occurrence up until the second half of the 20th century, like it or not. Uh, let me give you a couple of, of, of examples that are weird. Uh, <laughs> America's marriage, Rudy Giuliani was married to his second cousin for 14 years until the 1980s. Albert Einstein's wife, Elsa, was his cousin on both sides of his family. Yikes. And then there's Philip II of Spain. He was married four times to three cousins and one niece. Okay, so they had a whole this, this, this going on. So that's weird, but it wasn't unheard of. In fact, it was more commonplace than we like to think about. Now, of course, today we recognize rightly the genetic danger of marrying someone you're related to. It causes problems. So how is it that our forefathers, our ancient ancestors could do so without great damage to their offspring? Well, we see here their long lifespans. We recognize that the corruption of sin wasn't as profound and effectual as it became after the flood, especially, and into later millennia where we find ourselves today. As one commentator put it, you wouldn't wanna drink water from the Hudson River in New York City because it's terribly polluted, right? But if you travel all the way back, 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 back up to where that river finds its source, up in the Adirondacks, to the shimmering lake tier of the clouds, it's called, it feeds into the Hudson River, you'd find pristine water. And so a similar thing is going on. If you trace all the way back to the beginning, the effects of genetic mutation hadn't taken hold yet, and so there was nothing unsafe 
uh, about people marrying their sister. In fact, it was a necessity not once, but then again after the uh, flood and Noah and his kids come out to repopulate the earth. Verse 17 continues, and Cain became the builder of a city. He named the city Enoch after his son. Okay, how could there be enough people on the earth to build a city? And as we come through this passage, it's clear the passage assumes lots of people, lots of activity, lots of population. It's impossible for us to know what the population of the world was leading up to the flood, but the number was almost certainly more than we'd expect. We're thinking of two people with their two boys, but Adam and Eve had more than Cain and Abel. They even had more than Cain, Abel, and Seth. Later in chapter five, we're gonna be told they had other sons and daughters. Now, at this time, people on earth lived for seven, eight, nine hundred years, right? They lived for a very, very long time. The diseases and the wars that cut down so many humans after the flood and into our own era, they weren't an issue then. Women could have children not for 30 or 40 years, but conceivably more than 10 times that length. Now think about this. Let's just start thinking about some examples that we know about, and then we'll get into some other calculations. When Jacob's family came to Egypt, and Joseph was there, and he saves them from starvation and all of that, then they come to Egypt, there's 70 people, we're told. 400 years later, after even enduring targeted genocide, how many people are they? We're told that there are 600,000 men, not counting women and children. It was probably more like one or two million people after 400 years, starting from that number. Let's take it into our own time. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Since the year 1800, if we go back 220 years, we have added six billion people to Earth's population. There were 1 billion people on the earth in the year 1800, and there are 7.7 or 8 billion people on the earth today. The BBC actually wrote about how NASA and other scientists are discussing population growth and the colonization of a human society because we're talking about going to places like Mars and sending pilgrims there to start colonies, right? And so they're studying this kind of thing. And their assessment, after speaking with experts, that a planet's population could grow from one couple to seven billion people in 557 years. That's not creation scientists. Those are people in NASA just doing calculations and working through some models. And listen, 557 years, seven billion people, that's not even 60% of Adam's lifespan. Adam lived 930 years, okay? So the folks at Answers in Genesis, they're a great resource when you're studying the book of Genesis. They calculate that if the population growth rate was the same as it was in the year 2000, which it was almost undoubtedly greater, but let's even call it the same. If it was the same as the year 2000, the earth would have been home to 750 million people at the time of the flood, okay? So there's no problem with, well, where are the people? There's lots of people, it happens quick, and so don't let that bother you. So here we see Cain has a son named Enoch. No, it's not the Enoch we know and love if you're a Bible student. He will be a descendant of Cain's brother, Seth. Now, the last time we saw that God had pronounced that Cain would be a wanderer over the earth, finding no rest and no home. So what do we see now? He's wandered a bit, but he's building a city. Now, we don't need to think in large scale. He's not building Pittsburgh or anything. 
linguists indicate it could be kind of a, a, a settlement or a small city in the way that we think of it, or it could just be a fortified encampment with multiple buildings. That would make sense as well, since remember, he was worried that vigilantes were going to come and execute him for his egregious crime against humanity. But what do we notice here? God had said something to Cain. He said, you're going to be a wanderer on the earth. And Cain is hard-hearted to the core. He was throughout the last passage. He is still now. We see more of Cain's just disdain for God and hard-heartedness toward God. He's attempting to defy God again. God said, I'd wander. Well, I'm going to plant myself right here. Now, we don't know if he finished this city or what went on with Cain, but we see just his complete rebellion against God and his kicking against God and his hardness towards God. In fact, in a way, he's putting himself in the place of God. He names his boy Enoch, and he makes this city, and he names it after his boy, effectively saying, I'm God now. I'm the decider. I'm making my own garden for my own little creation here, and I'm the one in charge here. I'm the captain now. And I don't care what God has said. I don't care what God has offered. I don't care what God has revealed. We're we're just into me and my family and what we're doing now, and we get to decide. This is the mindset and the culture that Cain was establishing for his line, for his society that is put on display in this passage. Verse 18, Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. These weren't all the kids in these families, of course. God is zooming in on a particular line so that it can compare with a particular line that comes from Adam through Seth, which will ultimately lead to the Messiah, that promised seed we've been talking about, who will save us from the power of sin and the impact of sin and restore creation once and for all when he returns. Each of these fellows that we just read about, we don't know anything really about them other than the last guy, but each of these fellows had the same responsibility toward God and the same opportunity to discover him and believe in him. It's, again, hard for us to think about, but it's important that we do. Adam was still alive for all of these guys. In fact, Adam lived long enough to see nine generations down of his descendants. He lived all the way to see Noah's father be alive for 50 years or so. When you do the math and we see the genealogies coming, Adam was alive for all of that. Any son of Cain, who was a grandson or great-grandson of Adam, could go to their old papa and say, why don't you tell me about the Lord? Now, it seems like perhaps at this point, God was no longer meeting face-to-face with the people of earth the way that he had with Adam and apparently with Cain and Abel. Abel was dead. Cain was in rejection and rebellion. And in a moment at the end here, we're going to see that some things concerning worship and a relationship with God are somewhat different. But any one of these guys could have gone to Adam and said, tell me about the garden. Tell me about the serpent. Tell me about what is going on in the world. Tell me the story. Everybody's so, you know, into Ancestry.com right now and learning the fake stories about what happened to their fake ancestors. I'm sorry. If you've done that, I think that's great (laughs) for you. They're just not incentivized to tell the truth is all I'm saying. You know, I just, I feel great for you if you've done it. But anyway, everybody's into that. We want to know the story. How did we get? Did I come through Ellis Island? Did we come through the Mayflower? Did we, you know, where were we from and how did we migrate and all this kind of stuff? 
These guys were not far removed from the original man who was created by God himself out of the dust of the earth. And they could have gone and spoken with Adam and Eve and any son of Cain, any descendant there on the earth could have gone to their great grandfather and heard him speak about the Lord. We'll find that the origin of the mark of Cain was still known to at least the seventh generation of his descendants. And so all of these folks that we're talking about here, they're without excuse. They're, they're depicted as people who have no interest in God, no faith in God, but it's not because God had hidden himself away from them, it's because they had made a willful choice like their father Cain to say, we just don't care. Yes, there's a God, yes, there's a truth, yes, there's a story here, but we don't care. We're looking forward and downward at our own lives and at our own interests and in our own pursuits. Verse 19, Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ada and the other named Zillah. The first poster child of American marketing was Donald Eugene Anderson. His picture was put on the first March of Dimes campaign poster in their fight against polio. That's where the term poster child comes from, by the way. It is, according to the original meaning of the term, a poster child is one who is afflicted by some disease or deformity, and he is put on display in an attempt to raise awareness or raise funds for the fight against that disease, okay? And so what we have here, the text, God inspiring, the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses as he collects this text, it zooms in on this particular, what we might call a poster child, who's completely afflicted and debilitated by sin, Lamech. Now, of course, he wasn't a boy. He was a grown man, and he was a bad man who not only gave in to sin, but reveled in it and allowed it to rule him. The way that God had warned Cain, he said, hey, sin is crouched at the door. If you let this thing in, if you do not master it, it is gonna rule over you. It is going to destroy you. And that is exactly not only what had happened to Cain in regard to his slain of Abel, but it's exactly what Lamech was all about. And Lamech is the poster child for all of the line of Cain and, and the people around him. Sin ruled his family. He's the first recorded polygamist. Though many criticize the Bible and suggest that it approves of polygamy, that isn't true. Listen, the facts are stated and recorded, but it's not endorsed. From the beginning, God established marriage as one biological male and one biological female living in a dedicated monogamous relationship as long as they both lived. That's the standard. That's what God wants. That's what God gave to them and explained to them. Polygamy is not presented in a positive light in the scriptures, much to the contrary. So sometimes you'll hear critics of the Bible, uh, critics of Christianity say, well, you know, look at how wives were treated, look at slaves and things like that in the Old Testament. And those are straw man arguments. God does not endorse polygamy. He's not for polygamy. He's very much against it. And it never turns out well when we see it in the Bible. Now we're told that Lamech took his wives. Based off the meaning of his wives' names, scholars infer that he did so because of superficial reasons, not substantive ones, certainly not spiritual ones. Now think about this. Lamech took his wives, but God brought Eve to Adam. I think this is really important. And if you're a young person here tonight or if you're single here tonight, I, you can zone out after this if you want. Really pay attention to this part. I think it's very important. God brought Eve to Adam. Lamech took his wives. Eve was a gift specially designed to pair with Adam in just the right way. You who are single people of God, don't just take a spouse. 
God has one in mind for you. He has one he is preparing for you. And in the Bible, whenever God's people tried to do him a favor and find a spouse on their own or find a, you know, a, you know, a concubine or something on their own, the result is always disaster. And the result is always God coming to them and saying, yeah, no, not Hagar and Ishmael. Can you please get back to what I, what I planned for you? Think about it this way. The Bible says that God establishes our steps in life, that he has allotted the number of our days. It says that he has marked out our time and boundaries. It says that he has custom made a path of life full of good works for us to discover and walk in. It says all of these things and more. Do you not think that he has a particular person in mind to give you for that most significant relationship of your life? Do you think that he's just saying, Okay, I've, I've planned out the days of your life and I've carved out this specific path just for you that we're gonna walk on together and I have allotted the number of your days and I've scattered you through time and through the earth for specific purposes in a specific place, in a specific community and context. Who cares who you get married to? Of course not, that would be silly. God has someone in mind for your life. He does. Wait on the Lord and allow him to bring you together with your spouse. Now, before learning more about Lamech, we get to meet his kids. Verse 20, Ada bore Jabal. He was the first of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal, and he was the first of all who play the lyre and the flute. Zillah bore Tubalcane, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubalcane's sister was Naamah. None of these are recorded as believers, and yet they were significant contributors to Earth's culture and industry. We are still following in these people's footsteps today. They are remarkable uh, founding uh, uh, leaders of industry and art and invention. Truly remarkable. On one level, their accomplishments are, are remarkable. I mean, God is remarking on them. But ultimately, their individual lives completely lack eternal weight. When's the last time you thought about Tubal Cain and what he contributed to God's kingdom? You didn't because he didn't. And so it doesn't mean that all of Earth's culture or all of Earth's commodities are evil. I play guitar because Jubal invented a lyre. A lyre was like, some, your translation might say harp, but it was more of a string-plucked instrument, what we would recognize as a guitar. Some of you are flautists. You do so because he invented the flute. He's working with, you know, tools and, and doing herding. I mean, we live, in, we live in dairy country here. Not all of Earth's culture and commodities are evil. But when a life isn't founded and fed by faith in God, by his directing word, then that life is ultimately wasted. And when a culture doesn't find its source and motivation in the grace of God, it will inevitably allow selfishness and corruption to flood in and contaminate it. That spiritual principle is not only proven through history, it is demonstrated for us immediately by Lamech himself. Look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. You, we love this guy already. Wives don't, or husbands, don't talk to your wives like this. Don't be a jerk. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. 
One of my personal, this is true, one of my personal all-time favorite Bible study insights comes from this very section from our own Pastor Jake. He once pointed out that Lamech was the first gangster rapper. And it is, it is absolutely true. The boasting, the ladies, the violence, the using of your own name. We got Lamech right here, right? This is great. It's all there. Anyway, moving on. So it seems that lust had perverted his family life, and now we see that pride had driven him to bloodshed. His ancestor Cain had killed in secret, but Lamech did it in the open. He's so full of himself that he boasts in what he did. He's excited about it. What a great man I am. What a big man I am. I butchered a lad because he offended me. It's worth noting that some scholars actually see two murders here, not just one. But this was no simple chest thumping. It wasn't just that, you know, something had gone down at the, at the tavern down the road and he killed a guy and then he said, yeah, I'm, I'm big. No, he went home and he spent time composing this poem. Uh, language scholars tell us that this was an intricate, carefully constructed poem. Compare it to the simple poem that had been offered by Adam when he first saw Eve there in the garden, full of thanks and recognition of God's goodness and excitement for the life that was going to result. And he couldn't wait for what was coming next as they were going to live life together. And now you have this guy sitting down writing his murder rap about how he killed one or two guys and how excited he is about it. Lamech here has become his own moral compass. We see in his song that he's saying, I'm God now right? I do what I want, when I want, to who I want, for the reasons I want. I take what I want. I'll terrorize my wives if I feel like it. I'll terrorize my neighborhood if I feel like it. Like it. I decide what is just. I'm the arbiter of justice. If you offend me, I'm fine to kill you. I'm God now. Effectively is what his heart is saying. And the result of becoming your own moral compass is violence and death and destruction, right? When you are your own moral compass, you become Lamech. No, you might not actually kill anyone, but look at how he treated his wives. Look at the way that he treated his community. Look at the way he thought of himself, his self-centeredness, his, his disgusting pride, his quickness to anger, his quickness to violence, his excitement about shedding blood. When we become our own moral compass, when we decide it doesn't matter what God says, it doesn't matter what God's word says, our culture has decided that this is right, this is true. Well, it's a real problem. The Bible explains that, yeah, what happens then is you call good evil and evil good. And a lot of that is happening in our culture today. And guess what the result has been? Widespread violence and death in all corners of our society, right? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, verse 25, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel since Cain killed him. In contrast to the individualism and selfishness of Cain's line, we see here God's people thinking very differently. They see the Lord as being involved with each part of their lives. They see him as being a God mindful of their hurts, mindful of their losses, a God who will still carry out the promises that he made to them, even when it seems like those promises had been derailed. Remember, Eve had thought that Cain was going to be the promised deliverer. When Cain was born, she was like, here it is. God has sent the deliverer. I can't believe it. And she who shouldn't believe it because it all came crashing down. She didn't give birth to the deliverer. She gave birth to a murderer. And yet her faith did not fail. It continued and even grew. 
She was sorrowful over the loss of her precious son, Abel, but she was not defeated. She didn't turn her back on God. And neither should we be defeated when trial or suffering or loss comes our way because those things will come our way in this life because of sin. God is still God. He is still faithful. He will still do what he has promised in his word concerning this world, concerning your life, concerning your future. And so like Eve and those that come through Seth, we can choose to believe God and say, hey, things are not exactly working the way I thought they were gonna work, and I've suffered incredible pain or incredible hurt or incredible loss, and yet I still know that God is good and God is with me and God is going to do what he promised. Verse 26, a son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. When we look at the godly line, there's no descriptor of their jobs or the things that they made. That will be the case all the way down till Noah when the narrative starts to change. As God compares these two humanities, the difference was not in how great their production was. The difference was who their hearts were devoted to. This was the difference. Some began to call on the name of the Lord. That's what separated them out. Of course, Seth and his descendants and those around him, his family, they were busy doing stuff. I'm sure they were inventing things too and, and creating settlements and encampments and things like that. They had to live a regular life like you have to live a regular life. But here's who they were. This is what they were defined by and made them different. They called on the name of the Lord. They were devoted to the God of their father, Adam. And that was the difference. In future passages, we'll see the believers are, are described this way, that they found grace in the eyes of the Lord or that they walked with God. That was the difference between these two societies, these two humanities. What does it mean that they began to call on the name of the Lord? Well, some scholars think that, that it means that they claimed the name of God for themselves, like how we call ourselves Christians, that out in the world they said, well, we're of God. And we were, they're goddies. I don't know what they would, what they would have called themselves. <laughs> they're the L gang, right? Or, you know, they're, yeah, it, so we are not told exactly uh, that, but it's possible that they had actually taken God's name for themselves and, and went by it the way that we go by the name Christian. It also indicates that they were proclaimers of God's word. And we know that that's true because the Bible explains that Seth's descendant Enoch was a preacher that Noah was a preacher, and so not only did they believe, they also proclaimed who God was and what he had said. And we're told it also indicates that they established a regular corporate time of worship, and so we see a shift here. No longer does it seem where, where individuals coming and presenting a, an offering to God face-to-face -face like we saw with Cain and Abel. But here it seems that they are gathering together, scholars indicate, for regular corporate times of worship like we are doing right now. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord today? Well, it means to walk with God like these faithful forefathers did. First and foremost, it means that we believe, that we put our faith in God and his revealed word, that we trust that his way is the way that leads to life, and that we then orient our lives accordingly. It means that we devote ourselves to worship personally and corporately as a group of believers with those Christians that we've been connected to in this time and place. It means that we recognize when we come together, we don't do so just out of tradition or to give lip service to some religion. That's what Cain did. 
but so that we might come before the majesty of God with an offering of praise and surrender and obedience to him. To walk with God, to call on his name means that we do obey him in our hearts and our family lives and our pursuits, even though we have regular life pursuits. We got to eat food. To get food, we got to buy it at the grocery store. To buy it at the grocery store, we have to have a job to make money. God understands that. He doesn't want everybody to just sit around only just doing om all the time to him. He says, yeah, you're going to be in the world. You're going to be mingling around with the people of the world. And, and it, it would be impossible for you to be complete, re, completely removed from the unbelieving world. We, we live regular lives, but along the way, we go God's way and we show obedience to him in our hearts and our family lives, our pursuits. It means that we focus our minds on what he has said and focus on being different from the world we find ourselves in. Different in profound ways, lots of profound ways. That's what the Bible reveals to us, particularly the New Testament, how different the life of Jesus is in comparison to the life that rejects Jesus. For example, when the world says it wants 77 times revenge like Lamech did, Jesus comes to us and he says, actually, I'd like you to choose forgiveness 70 times seven times. 490 times I want you to forgive while that guy over there wants 77 times revenge. That's how different these two humanities are. Meanwhile, as we live, when I suffer, when I'm attacked, when I'm in a time of struggle or loss, I can follow the example of Eve and of Seth and these others and choose to continue believing God and trusting God, the living God who will deliver me home to the enduring city. This mindset, this walking with God is what makes life worth it. It's what gives life eternal value. It's what makes a life great and what would make a society great because it is righteousness that exalts a nation. The great society is the one full of faith in God, in his word, in his promises, as we not only trust him and believe him, but go with him and allow him to direct our lives, obeying what he asks us to do, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, knowing that the other side is life and not death.